0: Hey, everyone. Before we get to today's content, I wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast from the 11FS Podcast Network. The fintech marketing podcast hosted by me eric fullweiler chief marketing officer of 11fs over the last couple months i've been speaking to heads of marketing from the world's leading fintech and financial service brands monzo Revolut, mastercard zero starling lemonade and many more we heard their insights and ideas on how they build brand and drive growth for their businesses and now we can bring them to you so if you're into fintech FS Marketing, which I assume you are, uh, please check out our brand new podcast. Search for Fintech Marketing Podcast on any podcast platform. Subscribe, share, leave us a review, and please do let us know your thoughts. Appreciate the support.
1: In our remote working locations for episode 136 of Blockchain Insider, the show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you the digital dollar dropped whilst China gets one step closer, Bitcoin is booming on Cash App, and the CFTC announces guidance on the physical delivery of digital assets. Alrighty, all this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and we have two brilliant guests joining us remotely today. First up, we have returning Rich Crook, who's director at Lab 577. Rich, how are you doing, mate?
2: Doing very well, Simon. Great to be back on the show.
1: Great to have you back. And of course, joining us for the first time is Dave Hudson, who's chief engineering officer at R3. How are you doing, Dave?
3: I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. You're very, very
1: welcome. All Um Great to have somebody from all three. You guys have a new development in recent news? Yes. What
3: happened recently? So we, we shipped our latest software. So this is the first time that we've shipped this year. Uh, so we shipped our Corda Open Source and Corda Enterprise 4.4 releases, and that went out last Monday. We've also shipped the Enterprise Network Manager that goes with that, which powers the Corda Network.
1: Brilliant stuff. Well done to all involved. Um, All right, let's get on with the news. First story comes from Coindesk, and this is about a house stimulus bill that adopted and then promptly dropped the idea for a digital dollar. So just over a week ago, Donald Trump signed into law the largest economic stimulus package in US history. But a version of the bill dated the 22nd of March had been circulating included a passage that, if passed, would have led to the creation of a digital dollar. Under the two draft bills, the Federal Reserve could use a digital dollar um, and digital wallets to send payments to qualified individuals consisting of $1,000 for minors and 2000 to legal adults. The bill did never indicate the program would use a decentralized ledger or any sort of crypto. However... Digitising the dollar in general is seen by many influential figures as a necessity for the US to retain some sort of financial hegemony. What did you think when you saw this one, Rich?
2: Um, I think you uh, you recognised from the stimulus package and stimulus was uh, a s- simple response to the, uh, the COVID storm coming through. But as always, you go to war with what you have, not what you need. But what we're seeing here from the stimulus bill is that the US want a digital dollar and um, This type of legislation that gets passed so quickly, usually named um, appropriately, this one was called the CARE Bill. Um, You look back at the 9 11, when 9 11 went through, we had the Patriot Act, and off the shelf came a large chunk of legislation that was simply there, waiting to go through with the next vehicle that it could could go through. So the next event that would make it happen. So it's not really now a conversation around uh, if we get a digital dollar, it's now just a matter of when. Obviously, this one was, was dropped for this event uh, through this stimulus bill. But the, the need and what they want here, is, the need they want here is to be able to reach over the banks and put money directly into people's hands. Sadly, uh, as we say, uh, you only go to a war with what you have. They don't have this. They didn't start this project early enough. And now when we need it in COVID, uh, they can't use it. Uh, but it does mean that that legislation is just waiting to come through.
1: There's something to be said about the U.S. payments landscape here that they they physically can't get the money into bank accounts quick enough. Um, you know, it, it, the U.S. payments landscape. No, not everybody has a bank account. First and foremost, there's, there's tens of millions of people who uh, you know kind of work paycheck to paycheck, and and it, it literally is sort of you go cash the check for physical notes and coins. Um, and there's uh, a whole uh, swath of people as well who uh, sending a check or moving cash is is easier or preferable than dealing. With ACH or WIRE um, in the US. So um, you know, we've seen folks like Jack Dorsey from Square come out and say, actually, we Square could help out here. So there's more. Fintech that solutions that do exist, um, but there's there's really something interesting here about the the challenge people find themselves in. Um, Dave, you've worked with a lot of kind of organisations around the world, and, and really, Alfre has looked quite closely at you know, central bank digital currencies. Why might organisations be interested? In, why might countries, not organisations, countries, be interested in a in a digital dollar? What, what's useful about it compared to dollars
3: that we already have? Surely they're part digital already. I think the huge advantage is that if we get central bank digital currencies, then it's going to enable a whole series of uh, settlement to to exist. And and I think one of the things we've seen when we've been looking at applications for CBDC is we've been looking at scenarios where you can actually think about. Introducing new concepts that, you, that that don't exist right now, or you can formalise some other ones that, uh, that that you might like to create. So I think that the, the real advantage for a CBDC is we can introduce a mechanism that allows settlement to be much more streamlined. Uh, it can be much more consistent between different countries and and uh, with a lot of organisations that span countries. That becomes much uh, much more interesting as well. Um, so I think that it's it's more a matter of when rather than if. Uh, I think there's there's a, a, a huge amount of interest in making this happen. I think that one of the one of the problems is that we actually need to find a standard technology to make this work well. It's very very easy to produce bespoke solutions for individual countries or for for individual asset types, but the real advantage uh, comes when you have a standard approach that can be used for for many many different sorts of assets, and it makes it much easier to then build other systems on top of those. Yeah. So I think, you know, CBDC is a fundamental rail.
1: There's always that trade-off, isn't there, between solving the problem I have right now versus being able to build something that can solve lots of problems in the future. And and that sort of uh, em- almost emergency, urgency uh, of solving problems that we have right now is is, is kind of uh, an interesting and delicate balance. But um, meanwhile, um, there's a couple of linked stories to this that I think add to the conversation.
2: Well, Simon, before we move on, you, from China's side... This isn't, this isn't a response to COVID. They aren't taking a crisis and turning it into an opportunity. They themselves have been at this for many years. This is actually goes back to the original issue they've got, which was that Bitcoin gave rise and its value was rising because their, their population was offshoring wealth back in 2015, 2016, and then obviously through the bubble, offshoring wealth from from China.
1: Well, this was going to be my point, Rich, um, because the story here is about China turning a crisis into an opportunity, as you were saying. Apparently, they're getting one step closer to their central bank digital currency. Um, And according to a Global Times report on the 24th of March, um, the Bank of China has completed the development of, quote, basic functions of the official digital currency and drafting laws that will help with its implementation. The news outlet also mentioned that a number of Shenzhen-based private companies, including Alibaba, Tencent, Huawei, and China Merchants Bank have participated in the development of the digital currency. And I think as you say, um it may be in your perspective uh disconnected from coronavirus itself and and the whole crisis that's created this is much more about uh dealing with the the kind of offshoring of capital that China was dealing with from a policy perspective is that fair fair summary of what you're saying
2: i think so i think the 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 chinese are trying to enforce their fiscal policy their capital controls um And that's difficult to do when they've got a a currency that lets them get around that in in the form of Bitcoin. What's interesting uh, is to to recognize that central bank digital currency is a multi-decade play. When you look at things like real-time gross settlement systems, they take decades to get into place. Um, The Chinese have been at this for a while now. Yes, Facebook accelerated the interest of central banks worldwide with the Libra project and and great uh, Facebook to do that. We're... Back in 2015, we suggested, or I, I'm certainly on record, saying that those central banks will start issuing these types of digital currencies. But there's always a conversation between, should it be the sovereigns that issue currency or should it be the merchants? And there is a reason why the, the uh, kings and queens heads are, are on notes and coins. It's because the sovereigns won. When we had this debate many, many centuries ago, uh, we're now having it again. What's interesting with this story is that we're now starting to see the Central Bank of China bringing in private companies to actually distribute this ledger rather than hold it as a central uh, ledger. And that that for us is, uh, is an interesting uh, space to uh, to watch.
1: Well, we always sort of saw that with commercial banking and the difference between that and kind of central banking in terms of who can create money and money supply and, and who can run and participate in the payments rails. I think what you're saying is quite different, though, Rich, which is it's not just uh, licensed um, operating banks with that are licensed by the central bank here. You're talking about companies that may may have almost no banking activity or some banking activities, but their primary course of business is chat applications or e-commerce or something else or operating technology infrastructure. And they too can participate in this in a way in the distribution and management of uh, money as it flows around the system. I mean, Dave, that's a fundamentally different model. But how do you think about the how you would architect something like that? How, do, how does it even fit together?
3: So I think one of the big things is that you're seeing companies being involved that know how to operate at scale. Uh, And I think if you look at the typical banking infrastructure, they have their own sort of bespoke systems. They operate at scale inside a single organization, but they don't operate at scale on, on a sort of a global level. When you're talking about potentially opening these things up to vast numbers of participants, you know, millions of people, then you have to have people who know how to operate at that sort of level. You you can't be reliant upon any single sort of approach to doing this. You need the best of all of those technology implementations. More importantly, if you then want to use that to to actually build additional things on top of it, you're now talking about providing a a large-scale infrastructure. So you need to find companies who know how to actually uh, not just think about architecting, but actually know how to deliver that to other people at serious scale.
1: I want to bring it back to the consumer demand, Rich, because there's a linked story here from the block, and this is about the shift in payments habits because of coronavirus. Could bolster central bank digital currencies, say the Bank of International Settlements? And this is because cash might be a vector for the disease's spread, which might spur demand for digital methods of payment. Um, We've already seen in the UK and Europe, the contactless limit has increased. And I saw a story this morning as well that the use of mobile pay in the US has increased significantly. So uh, using your card and touching the PIN device is is obviously just as probably problematic as touching cash. But uh, the more contactless we are, the more digital we are, the less likely you are to come into physical contact. Uh, Do you think this could be something that people are looking to be opportunist about? It's like, aha, we need to remove notes and coins because they have this problem too. Because cash was always seen as on the one hand, challenging for the taxman, challenging for the uh, kind of uh, the cost of moving money around, just to, moving big loads of cash from A to B is, is difficult. It takes vans, it takes security, uh, it takes a distribution network. Um, and then you've got the fact that it can be used for for criminality. Um, but on the other hand, it's really well liked by the elderly. Um, it can be good for those with poor eyesight. Um, cash has a lot of benefits to it as well. So you know, what, what might a central bank achieve other than just the cost by taking money out of supply? Are there other policy objectives from a central bank standpoint that they might be able to get to?
2: So I think what we're seeing here is is an acceleration of an already established trend where 25 years ago, if you went into a shop and bought a packet of biscuits with a credit card or a debit card, you get a very strange look from the people in the queue and, and from the cashier. Uh, now you wouldn't even think twice about doing it. Uh, And if you remember, so 10, 20 years ago, the cashback scheme, where supermarkets were giving you their cash um, in return for putting it on an electronic payment. And that was exactly to your point, which is that cash is expensive to handle. And the supermarkets wanted to get it back to their customers. So they didn't have to hand it at the end of the day. Move that forward now 15 years. And what we're seeing is the Early and late majority, probably late majority in that, that classic adoption curve coming through. So now we're already starting to see the sort of two thirds of payments being electronic. Cash then is left to the laggards, and there is going to be a large laggard uh, group in there, just as you describe. Are we going to get to hundred percent cashless? No. But if we scare the general population into to not using cash because of COVID or other infectious diseases you'll push that lag population quite hard.
1: Well, and that's interesting, isn't it? The acceleration of an established trend, I really do think is a macro theme that we're seeing throughout this crisis, which is there was a trend towards remote work. Actually, that's been massively accelerated. There was a trend towards um, delivery at home um, versus kind of uh, in-store retail. That has had to massively accelerate. So there's a lot of those things that can happen, but as you say, there are some things that just weren't quite ready. Um, so it feels to me like the Chinese Central Bank and the People's Bank of China has a really clear view as to what they want their um, digital currency to achieve and what the pros and cons of what that would be for their economy and, and how they would manage it. it. feels like the Western conversation is intentionally more to research phase. Um, the recent paper by the Bank of England, the recent papers by the Fed, all are quite thoughtful about the pros and cons. But it does feel very much to be in the pros and cons space. Um, but it they do also talk about the possibility of moving into negative interest rate territory and the ability to remove money from uh, circulation and to you know decrease the overall um, monetary supply. There's something potentially there. But is that sort of something that is, you know, in your perspective, uh, a, a good thing for them to be able to move towards? Or is it actually dangerous for the economy that they could move into negative interest rates territory? Um, if, and, and where does central bank digital currency sort of play in that argument and debate? Is it central to it? Or is it just a, a distraction?
2: If we look at it from a time continuum, China is already ahead. They've got WeChat. majority of payments are through a, uh, a chat-based process. The merchants own the payment system, so it's not the banks anymore. The merchants, uh, the actual retailers, have, have taken control over those payment rails. We're seeing that trend going on in the in the Western countries uh, with Europe uh, after Asia and then the US uh, falling behind in, in that regard. We'll each move to using these chat apps to do payments. That means we'll take it away from the banks and the payment rails Uh, into the the retailers, the merchants, the Googles, the Apples, the Amazons. And what then the central banks are attempting to do, which is this overarching central bank digital currency, is recognize that that attacks or threatens their ability to enforce monetary policy, whether you want to enforce negative interest rates, whether you want to control the supply supply of cash M0 in the market. So it's no surprise that the central banks are now waking up to what is effectively a threat of their control of the sovereign currency if the merchants are actually running that currency, which is why Facebook absolutely landed square center stage with Libra and said, this is what we're going to do. And out of nowhere, the central bank woke up and went, that doesn't really work for our first principle, which is monetary policy stability. Uh
1: Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to move to the next story because you mentioned uh, apps being the key for payments in the future. And I think um, this story from the block really does ring with that. Um, So Square, of course, the um, person-to-person payments cash app. But also, the uh, kind of merchant acquiring and, and point of sale app um, has said that uh, Bitcoin engagement has grown in recent weeks amid the market volatility. Um, the CFO said during an investing a call last week that the recent uptick in engagement um, as part of that um, t- market turmoil has seen uh, adoption and engagement, especially with fractional equity investing uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, And he's also said that Bitcoin uh, and equity investing have seen strong volumes in adoption, giving that some people see a buying opportunity in the market. And that comes a month after Square announced more than 178 million in Bitcoin purchase volumes in, in US dollars for the fourth quarter of 2019. As for the Cash App itself, uh, the CFO remarked that customer acquisition activity has surged in recent days. So there's a real shift away from uh, using my uh, my traditional stockbroking app, my Fidelity, my Vanguard, my, my bank account relationship to these dedicated sort of fintech apps to, to do this stuff. It's almost like there's a world of central bank digital currency in the future, but Square may be showing us the way forward from a consumer perspective. And Dave, to, to the point previously, do we need DLT for any of this stuff? Because surely Square can kind of be the, you know, a private company like Square could be that bridge between the past
3: and the future. So I think that uh, the, the, the real advantage with DLT as a concept is the ability to build lots and lots of things and build, build a, a, that complex ecosystem. The, the danger with any single bespoke technology is that it's very, very difficult to integrate it. You end up having to build more and more stacks around that, and it becomes uh, difficult to think about how you do that on a global scale. Uh, so unless you have somebody who literally is operating everywhere and is able to provide that as a rail to absolutely everybody, you end up having all of these point integrations. So uh, the other thing that the DLT offers, if it's, if it's done correctly, is it gives you the ability to do those atomic swaps. Uh, so those exchanges of assets and do them in a, a sort of safe and, and easy way. Um, all the things that we actually got excited about in the in the first instance, uh, when we started talking about uh, cryptocurrencies and around distributed ledgers, were about actually improving the safety, improving the reliability, improving the velocity of, of doing these sorts of transactions. So... Yes, you could always build these things in, in other ways. Uh, there's nothing, it's not like we invented any fundamental new pieces of computer science to be able to, to build the, these uh, DLT technologies. But uh, done correctly and done, done with the right sort of platform approach, then we can actually build much more with them uh, and, and allow a lot of other people to build more things with them too.
1: Rich, do you think there's a real risk that um, banks are losing their customer relationship as these fintech apps start to emerge on the front end and as they start to become the interface to a real change on the plumbing side on the back end as well? If, if banks lose both the customer front end and the plumbing side, you know, how realistic is that? And, and how much time do they have to really react to that if it is a threat?
2: I think the banks have, have always owned a, uh, a very important part of the economy. They've they called a bank and that name is reserved for good reason. Uh, If you look at the banks that we think about are hundreds of years old, their trust uh, in their customers uh, hasn't changed. Maybe their their customer service may be not so good and as improving. But the trust, which is the core business model, which is what they're trading, their ability to price risk and then be trusted by the deposit makers in the society is an important aspect. That doesn't change. It doesn't go away. It may be, as you rightly point out, that their front end actually isn't isn't driven by by them themselves. You don't directly talk to your bank anymore. It may be Apple. It may be Google. uh, If we're looking at some of the retail offerings that are coming into the market. But if you look at the way you buy a car at the moment, you buy buy it through uh, a Jaguar or a Land Rover. But actually behind behind them is Lloyd's providing the finance behind that car. That's on the front end. Um, On the back end, the rails, the banks have always uh, enjoyed that monopolistic position and pricing power over the position they've got because of the regulatory moat that they have. But that is changing and that's changing in two ways. One, the monopolistic market infrastructure that was built up over time when, when the banks had high margins is now being thoroughly inspected. And while the banks are moving their cost base down inside their houses, they're still paying for these very expensive market infrastructure, and that market infrastructure is, uh, is, is definitely moving And uh, as new technology comes in. Things like distributed ledger, it's allowing us to rid ourselves of these centralized databases and allow us to spread that uh, market infrastructure out amongst the players rather than run it as a central function, which is why you're seeing people interested in this space. It's
1: interesting in, in other industries, Dave, from a technology perspective, you see this kind of uh, layering of capabilities. If I think about Amazon Web Services, they don't provide everything that you can get on Amazon Web Services. They focused very much on the the infrastructure and the services that support that infrastructure and then things that you can quickly do. But there's a whole suite of providers that kind of sit in there. Or above that, you might have like a Salesforce who plays more at the, the, the software level but they do that across many industries and many sectors. Uh, we haven't really seen the same in banking, but the, what, what Rich is saying there is that split between sort of the balance sheet, that this function of being able to take deposits and lend is different to the ability to move money across the rails um, and the connectivity between the organizations, which is different to the customer experience, which might even be different to what every brand then wants to do with different types of customer experience. How do you see that evolving and what lessons do we take from other industries from, if, if banks are going to move that way? Is it thinking about how they connect with each other and the rails? Is it thinking um, about their platforms? What, what is it they need to focus on?
3: Uh, that's a really good question. I think, I mean, certainly this was the, The thing that got me most excited about the whole uh, blockchain space when I first started looking at it was the fact that you had the ability to mutualize some of these things so if you look at all the things that allow us to do interesting things, you look at uh, for example the emergence of the internet I've been around long enough to remember where there were lots of different sorts of network technologies that were all different none of which talked to each other and we couldn't have that large scale uh, sort of adoption and we couldn't then have the explosion of things that were then built on top of it because we didn't have a pervasive standard we didn't have a, a unifying mechanism and that made it very, very difficult. Now, what we've seen uh, with DLT is we have the ability to build that unifying layer and, and imagine how to do that for the most fundamental things. So, for example, the central bank currencies And and, and other asset classes that can be digitized. We can build that unified layer that allows us to actually make this easier for people to transact. It's easier to imagine creating new things and also to drive some of the costs down as well. If we do this right, this is going to be the lowest cost way of doing it because you build these things once and you build them once for everybody who needs them. Rather than having to worry about everybody building their own replicas of it, having all the subtle incompatibilities and, and the problems that arise.
1: But it's not how it played out in big tech, is it? Big tech kind of, whilst it, it it did have initially those layers of the shared sort of protocols, the rails themselves have been sort of then you know kind of uh, either internet service providers or you have you know, service delivery from uh, people who are built on ad revenue, Facebook, Google, or hardware sales like Apple. Is there a shift from sort of some enablement recreating the maze, or is there actually a fundamental market shift away from banks here? Do where, where do you stand on that, Rich? Do you think it's it, this is good or bad for banks in the in the long term? This this sort of shift towards recreating the rails?
2: So I think focus on the customer's experience. Customer wants 24-7 availability, they want connectivity, and from a retail investor perspective, not just the retail markets in into the retail banking, the retail investor wants access to the same instruments and the same financial products as the high net worth individuals. And the 08 crash actually brought in a lot of legislation that forced the retail investor away from any of these types of financial products that the high net worth individuals. uh, And so what we are seeing in the retail space is a demand for those products and services, the alternative investments. and, And what you're starting to see uh, inside the banks is, is a move towards how do we offer that within the conduct risk uh, envelope that we've been given by the regulators, and the customer wants that cheaply. They want it done much, much cheaper than before. So actually, the banks are looking at their own cost bases to a greater extent. The last decade, they've wiped out those those large chunks of costs. They've still got a fair amount to go, but what they're now looking at is the market infrastructure, which is now looking at proportionally much bigger. the internal costs and they now want to go rid of those um and work through how do we get rid of those that 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 cost in the middle. So Absolutely. If you're a market, if you're a market infrastructure provider,
1: there's something to be said though. When, when in the UK at least, we we introduce in the UK the coronavirus business interruption loan. Um, in the US, they have a similar program with uh, small businesses. And uh, you know, in the US, they've dispersed precisely zero loans at the time of recording on the seventh of April. Um, in the UK, uh, I think of, as of last week, uh, the UK banks had dispersed uh, 983 um, loans to small businesses. Uh, There's something to be said about uh, the ability of a bank to change its internal systems and it's almost steadfast refusal to bite the bullet and slowly start to change those internal systems. So if we build a new infrastructure, if they plug it into their existing old infrastructure, do they not risk getting left behind? I think that's an interesting question. And I'm going to take us to the ad read and I'm going to take us through the next story, which becomes a a good place to to start playing with that question uh, a little bit more. So it's time for the ad read. This episode is brought to you by R3. Developed by R3, Corda is known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, interoperability, and bilitability. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of every highly regulated industry, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type size. With Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. A free trial of Corda Enterprise is available at r3.com now. Head on over and check it out. Alrighty, next story comes from Coindesk. And this was about HSBC putting 10 billion US dollars worth of private placements on our 3 Corda blockchain. And before we get into that, we have a soundbite from friend of the show, Todd McDonald.
0: Hello, I'm friend of the show, Todd McDonald, with a one minute rundown of HSBC's recently announced Digital Vault, which is putting billions of dollars of assets, in this case, private placements on a blockchain platform, which happens to be called Corda. So this story combines three of my favorite things. Digital assets, financial innovation, and, of course, Corda. So uh, why is HSBC doing this? Uh, First is due to overall push to make uh, assets digital that still are not digital, surprisingly. But you don't really need a blockchain for that. Uh, So second gets a little more focused on the blockchain side, and it's also very user-focused. Um, it's control of who sees the data related to this asset, this case of private placement. Users are in control to grant access to regulators, asset managers, auditors. They're kept in sync with all the changes as well. And this is a use case that we've seen repeatedly on Corda from really from day one. Uh, third, potentially most interesting. Uh, and this is according to Kieran Roddy, the head of custody innovation and strategy initiatives at HSBC, is a desire to future-proof their offering. Specifically, it's by tokenizing these assets, allowing for a full digital lifecycle, and importantly, unlocking an easier secondary trading of these securities, especially onto these emerging DLT-powered token exchange infrastructures that are, that are popping up and emerging. So well done to HSBC for pushing ahead with this innovation as they have the distribution footprint to really move market adoption forward. So this is your friend of the show, Todd McDonald, signing off from my attic. Back to you guys. Thank
1: you very much, Todd McDonald. Uh, interesting developments here in the private placement space. But before we get into that, I mean, I know some of our listeners will be very familiar with private placements. But Rich, just step back and take those that aren't uh, through what a private placement is and why it's different to buying or selling things um, that that are not private placements.
2: So I think most of the listeners will be okay with with public equities. Um, those are the ones you see listed on the on the Nasdaq or the London Stock Exchange. Less so probably as a retail investor in in public offerings uh, around the debt market, bonds, corporate bonds. But you read about them in the paper. Uh, you may not be invested in them. Uh, you may even have a fund in them. What people don't see uh, a lot of the time are what we call private placements. These are equity or debt issued by corporations that are not then listed on a public exchange like the London Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. And they make up a far greater size of market than the public listed uh, equity or debt. So private placements are are simply shares, equity or debt that is issued by corporations that is not on a publicly listed exchange.
1: Great explainer. Thank you, Rich. And Dave, I'm, I'm guessing you were somewhat um, aware of this happening. They mentioned here in the uh, in the release from Coindesk that the bank is using a blockchain as opposed to traditional databases because it plans to tokenize private placements after it has digitized them. So separate tokenize and digitize because any eyes, it's like an ability, illity, illity. Um, too much of that word just does my brain in. So what's tokenizing and why would I want to tokenize these private placements and why do I need a blockchain for that?
3: So I, I think that the, the key thing is, I mean, you can digitize things relatively easy. I mean, just scan something and you digitize it. But the tokenization is where we allow this thing to be uh, an asset to be transacted. And and that's really the, the huge advantage. And that's actually one of the things that we're looking at how we, we enable that to happen more easily. So... Um, Tokenization of assets allows us to, to then use them to actually transact them easily on a blockchain platform. Uh, a blockchain is an, an easier vehicle for doing that because it allows for a certain amount of, of zooming out and not having to look at this thing being in a single single place. So one of the dangers is that um, it's very easy to digitize something and have it in a central, uh, central location, but it's very, very it's usually very uninteresting to have something only exist in one place. You can't then trade it for something else uh, you can't then uh, have multiple locations where you might be able to trade that that uh, asset class subsequently. So by actually being able to tokenize it and put it into a blockchain platform, then we are able to create venues for these sorts of exchanges to take place. In terms of what what you might actually then want to be able to do, you can you can easily create secondary markets. And this is something we've seen in other places as well. The, there's a, there's a lot of interest in terms of what can be done with with taking things that have previously not been able to be transacted easily, and then make them available for other people to transact.
1: I think that's a, a key point, isn't it? Is that uh, shift from um, scanning the piece of paper and having something that is now living and breathing in a digital world? The the difference between digitized and digital. Um, it's kind of what's born digital can move around and continue to be digital throughout the rest of its life cycle versus always having to refer back to the paper. And I think creating that other world in which things can live is is, is hugely interesting. Um, but Rich, you know, secondary markets have been around for a long time. You're a fan of saying there's only so much fun you can have with your own blockchain. Are we not at risk of there being... 30, 40, 50 different standards for private placements and every other kind of thing that a bank does. And why is this interesting to a person on the street? What do they get access to if, if this happens? What's what's it doing for them? Is it just nice for banks or is it nice for everybody else as well?
2: Uh, I think you're right, uh, Simon. No, I'm fond of saying there's only so much fun you can have on your own with a with a blockchain. Um, HSBC in this instance have simply done a tech upgrade by taking uh, their, their private placement into a, a new or different kind of database. So it's still an electronic record that's siloed in their space. Where we see the novelty with things like Bitcoin um, and the other virtual currencies is that you see the same digital asset listed on multiple exchanges. So right now, if you buy a public share from the London Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, it will stay in that exchange. It does not allow it to trade between the two. Bitcoin allows you to uh, ch- distribute that digital asset across multiple exchanges. Why we, you hear us use the word distributed ledger as opposed to centralized ledger uh, whenever we talk about these things. So what we're watching very carefully on HSBC is do they follow the same route that ASX sadly went down where they didn't talk to their uh, clients and didn't talk to their partners and didn't talk to their competitors and ended up with a tech upgrade of their database? One of the reasons that I love this story is because we we were the the original team over in Lab 577 that ported tokens and accounts out of Ethereum and into Corda because we wanted to tie together privacy, the ability to be able to trade these tokens between each other without everybody being able to see who's traded what, because that's very important, but also to have that functionality that we saw as a killer app or killer feature inside Ethereum inside that finance-grade ledger of Corda. So now what HSBC have done now over the last couple of years is taken both those tokens that came across from Ethereum and also the privacy that um, we we started out with on Corda and have now given us an absolutely great use case. What we want to see, and, and if you read in between the lines on Kieran Roddy's lines about future proofing and the tokenization is, what we now want to see is those private placed issues coming out onto the public Corda network and being able to move around and be on different secondary trading venues. That's the real novelty, and that's where people on the street, people listening to this show should get really excited.
1: Yeah, this idea that a share can only exist on one exchange, or you have to buy it from that exchange, and it lives in there, and it's locked to it, um, and it could exist on many exchanges, means that you're increasing access to investment, you're... um, you're potentially financially including lots of people. You're opening up innovation. But from a, a, an institutional standpoint, price discovery and uh, all kinds of things start to become available. So it could be hugely, hugely exciting. Um, and, of course, collateral, multiple venues, all of that stuff. I'm going to move us to the next story. This one comes from Cointelegraph, and this is about the CFTC announcing their finalized guidance on actual delivery of digital assets. The commission voted unanimously, and the new clarity involves a 28-day deadline for physical delivery, allowing the buyer to use their purchased digital asset after that period. The CFTC concluded that the selling party and facilitator do not retain any ownership, explaining that the offerer and the counterparty seller do not retain any interest in, legal right, or control over any of the commodity purchased on margin, leverage, or other financing arrangement at the expiration of 28 days from the date of the transaction. And this cap it is, is kind of really bring to a head a years long process that traces its origin to the settlement between the CFTC and the crypto exchange BitFinex. That's something centered around the allegation that Bitfinex didn't actually deliver coins to its leveraged trading services customers. So um, there was a whole bunch of risk, I'm assuming, associated with that, Rich. Um, Rich, uh, talk to me about uh, why you think this guidance is useful or helpful. Is this sort of part of a macro trend of the creeping legitimization of Bitcoin? Where does the CFTC sort of stand within all of that?
2: I think it it, it does play to that theme of the creeping legitimization, or, or better still, the, the crypto land coming into the regulatory perimeter and it's each of these institutions take a regulatory license and their regulator starts to provide oversight, what you will see is convergence, as we always talk about, the convergence of the crypto institutions uh, with the existing incumbent financial institutions. And we usually use the the last line of animal farm. The creatures look from man to pig and pig to man, and they could not see the difference. It's only going to take a matter of time before the regulator has converged and homogenized these two distinct beasts the fast-moving crypto institutions like bitfinex uh, with the, the stage old banks uh, and the incumbents um, what's interesting in this regard and specifically in this space is around settlement and the delivery of the of what the cFTT are describing as a commodity the, in this case Bitcoin and, and the futures that were there um, actually this lays a path certainly in the US and others will follow um around what we're doing about central custody, um, where that is actually right now that central market monopolistic position that many of those custodians have, because we only had database technology, we only had a centralized database. And if you look at what Hong Kong have done, where they've absolutely said that the investor can own their digital assets outright they don't need to be stored in a central repository. Switzerland and and Singapore haven't gone as far as that, but they have started to say that there is no need for a single centralized um, custodian. And that's starting to break apart what is a very large regulatory moat. And the regulators are starting to recognize that they've over-centralized over the years because they've wanted to get to single sources of truth and single sources of regulation, which have solved some problems in, in terms of conduct risk and market risk, but actually they've got to a position now where there's pricing power being inflicted upon the, the, the participants. And when we talk about the members of a stock exchange, they're not really members anymore, they're victims. And what we want to do is actually break that apart so that we can actually see a flurry of competitive trading venues and these custodians can be decentralized as well.
1: And decentralization, Dave, is is that word again, but um, does that not introduce some tech risks, some, some other kind of risks?
3: There's always an element of risk, but one of the things that I, I think all of us would be looking for in this sort of space is to ensure that that risk is minimized. I, I think that's also one of the reasons why people sometimes run a little slow and, and why we were talking earlier about why, for example, a digital dollar hasn't happened straight away. Everybody appreciates that building these things properly is going to take some time. Uh, we have to do that in a way that minimizes the likely problems that that will occur downstream. And I think that's the same reason that when we were talking about what was happening in China, they're doing the exploration of the things that are essential to the technology to make it usable. They're not actually putting it live yet because they, they know that they need to be able to work out all of the nuances and work out how, how to make everything scale. Well, I think what we are seeing, though, is we're seeing a willingness to actually build these, these types of decentralized systems because I think there's... There's a, an understanding that they will allow us to do things in a way that's very, very different to having to put everything in a central central location.
1: It's interesting. If uh, if I was at a custodian or if I was in a market structure, I'd be watching developments like this very closely because whilst it's uh, it's probably not going to impact your business next quarter or even next year, it's one of those small signals that sort of says in the three to five year time horizon, things could start to look very different if regulators are making those moves. So we'll we'll keep an eye on this stuff definitely. It could be a um, small thing now, but very big thing in the future. Tons of stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Um, first one comes from Cointelegraph, and it's about ASX uh, with further delays of their blockchain settlement system due to coronavirus, apparently. Um, sorry from the block, Coinbase Wallet to let users lend out crypto and track interest earned across multiple DeFi platforms. Uh, the, uh, the kind of the normalization of DeFi there is slowly starting to happen. Coindesk, Everledger is looking beyond blood diamonds with ESG supply chain collaboration. And Coindesk, COVID fueled gold supply issues are putting pressure on Tether and PAX. Now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the week. This week's tweet of the week comes from the one and only friend of the show, Anthony Lewis, Anthony underscore BTC, who's also the author of The Basics of Bitcoins and Blockchains, which is a great book for beginners, by the way, if you're getting into this space or you've got friends that are. Uh, And he asked the question, what's more magical in a poll on Twitter, which by itself is pretty magical. Magical internet money or magical government money? Uh, What's your view on that, Dave?
3: Uh, Well, that's that's a funny tweet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh, Rich, do you want to explain the, the the origins of why this might be funny? Um, the uh, magical internet money versus magical government money.
2: I think that the legend, of, the legend that is Anthony Lewis, um, has in nine words absolutely encapsulated. Uh, if you're coming at this from one side, which is governments yet again starting up the money printing machines to get themselves out of the COVID space and the economic damage that that's causing. Versus the the doomsayers that, that point out that Bitcoin is simply magic beans uh, that you're buying and selling between strangers across the internet. He has in nine words done a fantastic job of of articulate the, uh, the things. put it out as a quiz and a poll. Yeah, brilliantly done. Absolutely well done, Anthony. Great uh, a great tweet.
3: And yeah, actually, I think one of the things that that uh, is really important, and it comes back to the, the sort of governance issues, is the reason that the magic internet money thing has been such a, uh, a question mark has been that the things that are making cryptocurrency very, very difficult are governance issues. So we've seen it in the Bitcoin space, all of the sort of fast-paced innovation that everybody was looking for back in sort of like 2014, and, and there was a, this assumption that was going to be a, a ton of, of new things that could, be emer- could emerge from that space haven't happened because it's been almost impossible to change anything. People... are really worried about making changes to the protocol because it will change the supply of Bitcoin potentially or change the rate of supply of Bitcoin. And we've seen the same thing if you look at the Ethereum community as well.
1: It's interesting of this fundamental difference of worldviews as well of fixed limited supplies versus uh, almost unlimited supply of money print to go burr, which is probably the best meme of our times. Uh, indeed, uh, lots of printing money, lots of uh, real world consequences for that. And we saw post 2008 the consequences of printing lots of money and, and how that doesn't necessarily bail you out, but it just Buys time from the future that at some point you're going to have to pay back, and um, there's there's a real set of questions there. So well done, Anthony. And for those interested, um, what's more magical? Magical internet money won at fifty five point three percent, which probably says uh, a lot about the people who follow Anthony, and more more than the, the general world view. But there is something interesting about again. Bitcoin's looking that bit less weird all of a sudden. So um, I think that's a good point to end this show. Um, Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to, Rich?
2: Uh, So from Richard Crook, Lab 577, we're helping financial institutions get onto the public Corda network to issue, transfer, settle digital assets. Uh, We've got Digital Asset Shared Ledger, Dazzle, uh, which you can find on on Google. Um, But if you've got a digital asset project on Corda, if no one else can help you, and if you can find us maybe you can get a hold of Lab 577 uh, to help you with the digital assets.
3: Sounds like a plan. How about you, Dave? Uh, So uh, if you want to find out anything about what R3 are doing and and more particularly about Corda, you can find uh, stuff at r3.com and Corda.net. If anybody's interested in developing or looking at how to develop things, we have uh, a new docs site as well. So we have docs.corda.net as well so people can find out more about the various things that we've been building
1: brilliant stuff as for me you can find me at Taylor on twitter uh, or you can find us at 11fs.com uh, just a reminder this podcast is brought to you by 11fs and we're a challenger consultancy who is helping people understand the shift from uh analog to digitized to digital and what you should do about it so do get in touch with us and uh, that's all for this week we'll speak to you soon have a good rest of your week.